gather together and study God's word. And let's begin with a word of prayer before we do that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us, both as individuals and especially also as a congregation. We thank and praise you especially, though, for the gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we study today uh, his encounter uh, with both Pharisees and with Nicodemus, we pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and blessing upon us. May you continue to reveal to us that which you would have us know, so that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word, and especially also how it applies to our lives. Be with us then and bless us to that end, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, last week, my understanding is you got through the wedding at Cana in Galilee, where Jesus performed his first uh, public miracle, first miracle. Uh, and today then, uh, we're going to pick up then in John 2, uh, starting at verse 13. And uh, verse 12 is kind of a transition uh, verse in John chapter 2, where it says simply that Jesus went down to Capernaum, and was his sort of base of operations. And uh, in, in Galilee, up on the, uh, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and you can go there today and uh, see a great uh, excavation site there. I'm not sure if you can go there today today because of all that's going on up, uh, over there, unfortunately, right now. But modern times, you can or, ordinarily go there and, and see it. Uh, where um, A couple of things there, we won't, won't get off on that. Uh, but now he is going to go from there to the Passover in Jerusalem. And uh, we'll be talking about that. Let's uh, begin, i uh, just going to read a little bit here and then we'll get back into it. So starting at verse 13 of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right, let's stop there. And uh, first of all, this is the first of three Passover uh, observances that John has for us. Uh, there is another one in John 6 verse 4. And another one in, the third one is in John 11:55. So three times, John, separate times, John makes reference to Jesus going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And you remember on the very first week that we talked about some background information on the Gospel of John. We said that in the Gospel of John, there's a lot more of the confrontation between Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea. In the other ones, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get a lot more of Jesus up north in Galilee and his ministry up there. But sort of unique to John is this emphasis on his uh, 
conflict, I guess you would say, the tension uh, between him and what he is doing and what he is saying, and the religious leaders, uh, the, the scribes, elders, Pharisees, and, and uh, priests, and chief priests. Uh, now, although it's not quoted here, it's not quoted in the synoptics, but we have to remember there was one verse we looked at in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that really kind of sets the uh, underpinnings for all that is going on here. And we looked at it earlier. In fact, it was quoted earlier. But in Malachi 3.1, we have uh, this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, we said when we were talking about that a couple weeks ago, who is the messenger that was sent before Jesus to prepare the way? John the Baptist, right? Okay. But 3 verse 1 goes on and says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is kind of, again, the underpinning. We've seen the preparer out there already, denying that he is the Christ, denying that he is the prophet, denying that he is Elijah. And now we've got the Lord, who is, is predicted here, suddenly coming to his temple. Now, we'll keep in mind, this was not the first time that Jesus was in the temple. Remember, he has been brought to the temple by his parents previously, uh, for example, when he was 40 days old, to have the um, sacrifice, the buying back, you might say, redeeming of the firstborn son. And remember, that's when Simeon sees him, and you know we get the, the song of Simeon, or the Nunc Dimittis, uh, as a result. There was the other time, remember, when he, uh, another time, when he was 12 years old, and it's almost comical, he, they, they, Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple, and uh, they take off and go back home, and there's no Jesus with them, right? I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. And so they go back, and they find him, remember, teaching in the temple. But now he is coming, we might say, he is coming to the temple now on his own and on his own authority. He's not being brought there by Mary and Joseph now. He is coming on his own. Okay? So again, even though that verse is not quoted here, it serves as the underpinning, as the fulfillment of that prophecy of Malachi. All right, now, so why is he coming? We get the answer there, uh, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Passover, obviously, we won't take the time now to look at it, but back in Exodus chapter 12, remember when God's people are being held as slaves in uh, Egypt, and remember God tried all nine plagues, and turning the, turning the Nile into blood, uh, grasshoppers, uh, it's all kinds of, of uh, plagues, and Pharaoh refused to let his people go. And then God prepares one final plague, if you will, and that is the killing of the firstborn in all Egyptian houses, uh, both people and animals. And remember, God's people were instructed by him to take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, without defects, to kill that, take the blood from that lamb, and do what with it? Put it on the doorpost and the lintel over the house, because that night, 
uh, that will identify, I guess we'd say, that house as containing God's people. And what will the angel of death do? He, when seeing that, will pass over, thus the name, pass over that house. And obviously that blood then identifies that house as containing God's people and in a very real way. That blood saves them. And in a very real way, the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, saves us. Not just temporally, but eternally. In fact, there are a couple spots in Scripture where Jesus is actually referenced as our Passover lamb. We didn't have that earlier when in, you saw last week in, in 1 verse 29 where Jesus is coming and John points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Didn't call him the Passover Lamb. So, a male Jew, I remember one of my seminary professors telling me, um, as a long time ago, telling me that uh, every male Jew should have been required, or was required, to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at least once in their life. Okay? And if at all possible, male Jews were to get there. Now, this was not a, not a, well, you know, if I have nothing else to do, I'll go. No, they were supposed to be there. And so Jesus is, as he did in every other way, is complying with both the expectation and the law as prescribed by God. You always, as it says here, you always go up to Jerusalem. I don't care if you start from Mount Everest, you always go up to Jerusalem. And that's a reference to the spiritual ascent, you might say, uh, going there. So that's why it says, and he really was. I mean, Capernaum is at sea level, and Jerusalem would be much higher than that. So, but anywhere you see, it's always went up to Jerusalem. Uh, now he goes to the temple, and what does he find there? He finds those who were selling oxen and sheep and so on, and the money changers sitting there. Now, why would they be selling oxen and sheep and have money changers there? Because, again, it is the Passover, and the animals were there to be sacrificed. And the money changers were there, again, because the, Jews, the male Jews had to pay the temple tax. So this is what you did when you, that's involved in your going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. A couple of things. When you're coming a long distance, do you think that if you're going there, that you would take your animals with you that are going to be sacrificed there? No. Uh, number one, it's a, it's a burden. But number two, they could be injured along the way, right? And then you show up and you've got a defective animal. Maybe he's got a broken leg or something. And, so, and guess who had to inspect the animals and uh, approve them for sacrifice at the Passover? The priests. Yeah. So they had, you had to come and, and get it approved. I don't know if they put a stamp on it, but uh, you had got to get it approved before you can go and offer that animal in sacrifice. And also, guess who had a whole bunch of pre-approved animals? The priests. Exactly. Oh, it was a marvelous thing. And so you could come, and of course, uh, do you think they gave a special discount on those, uh, uh, those animals? Just the opposite. Just the opposite. Okay. So, number one, uh, they've got a great thing going there, the priests do. And uh, then number two, the, the temple tax. You had, to, you had, you could not, I'll put it this way, you could not pay with Greek or Roman coinage. 
because Greek and Roman coinage, they weren't worried about uh, translation or or, uh, conversion. They had images of, of pagan deities on them. And that was not allowed. You know, you, you were not allowed to make a sacrifice or pay the tax to God uh, using that kind of coinage. So they uh, had coinage there. The money changers were there. See, this was so convenient uh, for everybody coming to Jerusalem. And uh, there were, uh, in, uh, there were um, it looks like historians have concluded that obviously not only did the animals' prices rise and inflated, but also the exchange rates. In fact, the Talmud, which is a commentary uh, made up, not made up, uh, comprised of rabbis' comments, one, one section says that the exchange rate was 15 times higher than what you could get in a regular you know, area. So it was a great uh, system that they had established there, all for your convenience, of course, when you were coming to Jerusalem uh, to participate in the Passover as a male. What is not said and what is usually concluded is that where is all this taking place? Court of the Gentiles. So in the temple, there's a court, first of all, the most outer court is the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could only go that far and no further. Okay, The next court was the court of women. And so the Jewish women could only go there and no farther. And then there was the court of the men. And of course the men could go through all of those and get to their court. Okay, So we think that where this was happening was in the court of the Gentiles. So you've got all of this business going on out there. So who is not able to come and pray with all that stuff going on? The Gentiles. I, I don't know why God's people did not pick up on this earlier. I've got a couple spots I want, I want us to look at, just again to emphasize that it was always God's plan that not only the Jews but the nations would come to him. And so if you want to either keep your finger or on your phone market, but let's go back, first of all, to Isaiah. And I want to look at Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, which is actually kind of indirectly quoted here. But Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And so Isaiah writes, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Now, who would the foreigners be? Gentiles, yeah, others. To minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant, these I will bring, this is a quote from God, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Okay? Now how much more clear could that be that the nations, foreigners as they're called here, are going to not only be coming to the house of the Lord, they're going to be, uh, their sacrifices are going to be received by the Lord, and they are going to be praying, and that those prayers 
will be answered by the Lord. I mean, it's, I don't know how else you take this, okay? One other spot, we could look at a number of places, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, and this is Solomon's prayer when the temple is being dedicated, okay? So 1 Kings 8, and let's look at verses 41 through 43, 41 through 43 of 1 Kings 8. Likewise, when a foreigner, there's that word again, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that, look at this one, all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now again, I don't know how much more clear God could be here. Now again, this is Solomon praying, but again, he's acknowledging that foreigners are going to come, you know. He doesn't say if, he says when a foreigner comes, right? And we see that fulfilled in the New Testament. We're going to see it uh, fulfilled um, in the court of the Gentiles here. That is obviously happening, and there were Gentiles who were converted to Judaism and became followers of the Lord. But what's going on now is that the religious leaders are, in effect, almost putting up uh, an insurmountable obstacle here by all this marketing going on outside. So you've got a number of things happening here. Not only do you have these exchange rates and animals inflated prices, but you've also got this going on. That they're in the court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles are to come and worship God. You've got all this going on, right? It'd be hard to imagine. I know what we could uh, parallel we could have here. We don't separate people, obviously, for worship. But what does that say to the Gentiles? You're not, you're not really welcome here. It doesn't matter what God said. You're not welcome here. And Jesus, uh, it's not only, again, the, the business, but it is to be a house of prayer and even a house of prayer for Gentiles. Okay? So look at what uh, Jesus does then. Um, he, uh, verse, uh, let's see here, 14. Um, in, the, in the temple or there, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. Now, we think that it's not really explicit, but where would there be some rope that he could put together sort of a whip almost out of cords? They would be the ropes that are, what? On the animals, controlling the animals. Uh, we don't think he traveled with a, a whip or, you know, cords. He may have gone over and untied some animals and constructed a whip made of those cords, okay? This is not meek and mild Jesus here that we're seeing, okay? And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He, he poured out the coins, okay, um, of, of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, who's not going to be happy at this point? Yeah, the priests. He is bad for business. Okay? 
and uh, they, are, they are not going to be happy. Um, I want to say one other thing here. I should have said this earlier. John has this early on in his gospel. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a cleansing of the temple on Monday of Holy Week. Okay? So if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see it on Monday of Holy Week. John has it up early in his gospel. There are a couple of explanations for this, and ultimately we don't know for sure, but there may be two cleansings that took place. There may be this one on the first Passover that Jesus comes up, and one on Monday of Holy Week. If you read the Synoptic Gospels, and I can't remember whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, on, on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and all that goes on, right at the very end of that account, it has Jesus seeing what's going on. Okay, Because remember, that Holy Week, that was the Passover time coming as well. And it simply says at the end there, it was late in the day, and so he retired or, or went away. And that kind of sets up, that Sunday evening, that kind of sets up what happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke on Monday. He's back, and he's back to, again, clear it out. So one, one possible explanation is there were actually two cleansings that took place, and another possible explanation is that John is not going sequentially here and moved this early on into his gospel because it fits very nicely, thematically, in this section. Okay? Those are the two most often thought of explanations for why these seem to be separated so much between John and the other synoptic gospels. Okay? Now, uh, just finish this out. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade or a house of business. Okay? And so again, it should be a house of prayer. It's being turned into a house of business, into a marketplace, uh, uh, and so on. Okay? All right, let's... Uh, Okay, let me, let me get just a little bit further, and then we'll take a question. And uh, his disciples remembered that it is written. Where is it written? Psalm 69, verse 9. Psalm 69, 9. It, is, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Or literally, the, the language means eat me up, consume me. In other words, I will be, I will be consumed with this zeal. For the Lord's house. Now we don't know did this. Were, did the disciples remember this right then and there, or did they remember it a little bit later on? We'll see that when it comes to his rising from the dead, it's going to be after. Uh, uh, sorry, when it comes to his in three days I will raise this temple. It's going to be after he rose from the dead that they remember it. Maybe they remembered it right on the spot, right here and now. Maybe it was later on that they remembered it. But again, notice Psalm sixty-nine nine is applied to Jesus. And there are another few places in the scriptures where, again, that psalm is applied to Jesus. And so one of the characteristics of the Messiah is that zeal for the Lord's house would consume him. Okay? All right. Let me uh, stop there. It's a good place to stop. We'll pick up with 18. Any comments, questions? Ruth? Yes, yes. 
So uh, Ruth points out that, and it is in the synoptics uh, account of it, that he calls it a den of thieves or den of robbers. Yeah. And turned it into, yeah. Which again goes to the, the um, exorbitant exchange rates and other things that were going on there. Yeah. Uh, other comments, questions? Oh, yes. Uh, it's just that uh, John often makes little commentaries as he goes along for his readers. Right. But like this one about the technical after they He's very good at this. Yes. So Bud's comment was that John often makes who's called explanatory comments along the way. And we had an example right here of after or they, they remembered this about that verse, Psalm 69.9. Yeah, that's correct. And remember when it was written, John written much later than the other synoptics. So maybe he is actually uh, assuming that people are familiar with these accounts and he's adding comments as they go, explanatory comments as well. Okay? Any others? Comments, questions? All right, let's go on. 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? In other words, these things, of course, is referring to what he just did. Came in and overturned everything, kicked everybody out. What sign do you show us? Now remember, sign in John is a key word. It's used, I think, about 80 times in the Gospel of John. Uh, synonymous with miracles, uh, John calls them signs. So we want to see what's your basis for doing this. In other words, we've got our chief priests, scribes, and elders have got this whole system up. What is your authority to be able to come in here and do this? Okay. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. There's another explanatory note. So let's go back and look at this now. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Okay? And so he's not really saying, he's not really directly answering the question, is he? They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And he asserts something that they probably wouldn't have connected with that. But he says, destroy this temple, meaning the temple of his body, and I will raise it again in three days. I will raise it up. So now, they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Now there's a Bit of a problem here, uh, uh, mathematically. Uh, Luther and others take the 46 years to be the time that the Jews returned from Babylon and reconstructed both Jerusalem and the temple. There's a mathematical problem here. Uh, the Edict of Cyrus was in 538 B.C. That's when Cyrus the Persian came in and defeated the Babylonians and issued the Edict of Cyrus, 538, Jews come back, start rebuilding. Temple, the reconstituted temple, we think was about 515 or 516. Math doesn't add up there, does it? So, but Luther, Luther thought that. By the way, just as an aside, um, you remember what happened when they dedicated the, uh, the new temple? <laughs> the people were crying 
because it was only a shadow of the former temple. How's that for a, a, a grand opening? People are out there weeping because they remembered the former Solomon's temple, right? How, how grand, uh, I hope that doesn't happen when we have our, our uh, dedication of new facilities here. Uh, I think it'll be better than this, though. Um, and then, so we think he's probably talking here about the time right before his life when Herod the Great actually was adding on to, uh, tremendously adding on to the temple, the, the second temple uh, himself. And that started about uh, 17, 18, maybe as early as 20 B.C., and so we think it's around the year 30 right now. So that math adds up a lot better, right? Taking 46 years to this point to build it, and you're going to raise it in three days? Come on. And so we think that's, and that's where most commentators today will go. That Jesus is, because that, that renovation is taking place right now when he's walking around, and uh, he's around 30 years of age, maybe a little bit more by now, not much. And that renovation is taking place, and I, I certainly would side with that one because the earlier math, just, as I said, just doesn't work. Uh, so, and Herod the Great, uh, incredible expansion of the temple and, and beautification uh, of the temple at that time. So it's probably that that he is referring to. Now, that comment by Jesus is going to come back and be used against him a couple of times, at least a couple of times. And let me uh, direct you. Let's see. Let's go to uh, Matthew 26. And this is at his interrogation before the Sanhedrin. So he's been arrested now, and he's appearing before the Sanhedrin. And it was a trumped-up trial that they had. They had nobody agreeing on anything uh, and, and, but this is one of the things that's used against him. If we look at Matthew 26, starting at verse 59, way towards the end of the chapter. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against him. Isn't that interesting? They're not seeking testimony. They're seeking false testimony against him that they might put him to death. There's their real motive. After Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus in John 11, at the end of John 11 it says, they sought a way to kill him. Okay? Uh, but they found none. So they didn't find any witnesses they could use, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So there's where that statement was used against him when he's being interrogated, and, but it goes on to say even, even they weren't agreeing. One other time, uh, well, at least one other time, when he's hanging on the cross. So take a look at Matthew 27, a couple, uh, chapter later, uh, starting at verse 38. So uh, Matthew 27, 38 to 40. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So apparently this saying was known by people, even those 
walking by, and we think probably some of the chief priests and scribes were there watching this take place. And uh, notice there, if you are this one, come down from there. Now, we won't go into this too much. Who is actually behind that derision of Jesus and saying, if you are, then come down? Satan, the one who does not want him to complete his mission. Even to the, you, you can, an interesting study is all the obstacles that were put before Jesus to try and keep him from going to the cross and dying exactly what he came to do. And at the very last moment, Satan still hasn't given up, right? He is speaking through the mouths of those who are there to deride him and ridicule him, if you are the Son of God. You know? Or another famous one, when, when uh, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be crucified, and then rise again on the third day, what's Peter's response? No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Okay? And so at the, and here we are at the very, he's hanging on the cross, you know, very near his last breath, and Satan is still working uh, as hard as he can to keep him from going through with his mission, with what he came here to do. And, of course, Jesus is faithful and, and does that. So, now, um, Again, John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. An interesting uh, way to refer to his body when he is at the temple. This, in fact, as a, as a contrast to all the wheeling and dealing that's going on at this temple, this temple, his body, is in fact the pure, godly temple. In fact, it is God with us at the temple. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, namely that uh, he, will raise, uh, he will raise it again on the third day. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The scripture that they believed, we think, was referring back to Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for his house will consume him. And the word is what he actually said in 2.19, what we just looked at, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. So after it was after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered this. Hey, wait a minute, remember he said this, and then they believed. Okay. Now just an interesting little play on things here. When you look at verse 20, uh, verse 20, that word, he says there, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. And the word in verse 22, when therefore he was raised, same word. Same word for raising the temple is the same word for raising Jesus, or Jesus being raised. Okay, So it's kind of an interesting play on words there that's going on. The, the uh, Jews are thinking, raise it, the equivalent of rebuild the temple. And here it's used, the same word is used for Jesus rising from the dead, which he did on the third day, fulfilling exactly what he said. Okay, let's stop there. Any questions or, uh, pause there, I should say, questions or, I don't know who was first, let's go Ruth and then Jan. Yes. 
yes, the term naos in Greek actually referred to the sanctuary itself and the holy place within that sanctuary. And Jesus then is applying that to himself, the one who is the holy one as well. Oh, no. Yeah, so the question was, did the word have another meaning for a body? No. Yeah. Yes. So the question again, would that word naos have a regular or another meaning or an obvious meaning to refer to a body, a physical body, flesh and blood body? No. And even the disciples, you'll notice that it's not until after he's raised from the dead that they put it together. Remember that he had said that. Yeah. Yes. It was not obvious to the Jews at that time. And that's why, again, even at the trial and even on the cross, they're still thinking, you know, those who dried him, they're still thinking he was talking about this big structure, this building in Jerusalem. Okay, let's first go to Jan and then back. Go ahead, Jan. Yeah, there are a couple other words they could use for simply rebuild. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the question is, was that a common question? What is the sign for you doing this? Yeah, not that I'm aware of. I don't think so. Uh, this, by the way, I should have said too, this is the first um, teaching interaction that Jesus has. And we're coming up on another one here with uh, Nicodemus. But so many times in the Gospel of John, there is rebellion against what he's teaching. And you see it here. But what they're literally asking for is, show us something. Yeah, proof that you have the uh, authority to do what you just did here. Yeah. I think, Carla? Yeah. Right, right. 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 So the uh, or statement was that Jesus does not say, you destroy this temple, meaning his body, but he's saying, in fact, um, let me take a look here. Right, right, and I will restore it. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so I was thinking this. The tense for that destroy, if you, it literally means it's, it's an aggressive heiress, which means if you destroy this temple, which, yeah. And so he is kind of implying that if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. So it's kind of implied in the, in the tense of the, of the verb there. But. Right, right. Yeah, there is, okay, so that is another instance where 
Uh, and and um, there's another, uh, I don't know exactly where, but there are sec- another section where he talks about this wicked generation who demands signs, and again, no sign will be given except that of Jonah. It's just three days, and out he comes. Okay, was there another hand? I thought I saw another hand. All right, let's go on. Um, so going on now in 23, so this is behind us. Uh, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so we're still there at this Passover, notice here, many believed. So there were people now, in what did they believe? We're not told exactly. They certainly didn't have it all put together at this point. But he was getting a following, which is going to, again, put him in further conflict as far as the chief priests, scribes, and elders are concerned. They're watching this slowly building in front of their eyes here. And then he comes into town and does what he did. So they're not going to be happy. Many believed in his name. Now, to believe in his name means not only his name, but everything that is included in him. What he has been saying, what he has been doing, and and so on. Many believed in his name. Notice here, when they saw the signs. There's that word again. When they saw the signs that he was doing. And in the Greek, that's an imperfect, and so it means that he kept on doing them. Okay? He didn't just do a couple and uh, call it quits. He, the signs he kept on doing when he was there. We don't have a lot of these recorded. We do have some, certainly. And again, the synoptics give us uh, accounts of those as well. But no, look at this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. So he did not buddy up to them, we might say. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that's a statement about his divinity, about the fact that he is God also. He didn't need them to... um, Give, them, give him any report, either about themselves or about what the scuttlebutt was out on the streets. He knew. And notice there, he did not entrust himself to them. He did not open up to them. He did not become buddies with them. And so you get this idea of a little bit of distancing going on here. He was not, you might say, in league with them. It'd be another way maybe to, to explain that. Okay? He knew what was in man. Okay? And still does. <laughs> uh, whenever we teach, whenever I teach confirmation and I we, we list the uh, attributes or the qualities of God, and we get to the one that God is all knowing, and I always ask the kids, is that good or is that bad? Stop and think, right? That He knows everything, every thought, every word, every deed, and they'll talk about, oh, I don't know, that's but He knows everything, including, right? Um, when you're going to have surgery next week, when, you know, this and that and the other. And we know that overriding all of that knowledge is also his compassion and his love. Uh, If that were not the case, we would really have (laughs) a lot to fear. But uh, anyway, Jesus knows the heart of man. I thought I saw another hand somewhere. All right, guess not. Let's go on. So here we have Jesus and Nicodemus. We're not going to be able to get through all of this uh, today, unfortunately. But this is the first, as I mentioned before, the first teaching discourse that we have in the Gospel of John. And there's actually going to be three little sections here 
that go back and forth. And they're marked by Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. And guess what? The, we translate the, the Greek word, amen, amen, I say to you. Amen, amen, I say to you. Three times Jesus says this back to Nicodemus. And this is the only one of the teaching discourses of Jesus that is not met with hostility and uh, conflict coming back at him. You'll see here, Nicodemus is not objecting to Jesus. He's not challenging Jesus. He's just trying to understand what Jesus is talking about. Okay? So let's go uh, for a couple minutes at least here. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So let's stop here for a second. Uh, Pharisee, clergy, or lay people? Lay people, yeah. And uh, he is, um, the Pharisees, you had the, you had the uh, priests on the one hand, and you had the Pharisees on the other. The priests were the ones running the worship, all the worship in the temple, and they, to them, the biggest thing was the sacrifices. You do the right sacrifice, you do it at the right time, you do it the right way, God is going to be pleased. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are the lay people. They are most concerned, not so much with those sacrifices, not that they were against them, but with how you live your life and keeping all of the rules and regulations and laws of God. And they felt that by that, God would be pleased. Uh, you know, Pharisees had a good reason for their beginning. We think it was a couple hundred years before Christ. And that was to try to stop the infiltration of the Greek influence into Judaism. And so they had a good origin at the start, but by the time Jesus, or a good reason, I should say, uh, by the time Jesus is here, the whole focus is on pleasing God by keeping all of these rules and regulations. And they actually constructed what uh, we today call a fence around the law, which were 613 rules and regulations that are in addition to the law of God. And it was called a fence around the law because it was to keep you from even getting close to breaking God's law. So, for example, let's say we're talking about the third uh, commandment to uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the commandment. But then they put this fence around it saying things like how far you can travel from your home before you're breaking the third commandment and, and all kind of, what you can do and not do on, on, the, on the Sabbath. Um, preparing your meal uh, on Saturday. There are still some Jews that do that, and so on. Uh, by the way, uh, I shouldn't do this now, but um, if you go to Israel today, make sure you don't get on a Sabbath elevator. It stops at every floor, because going more than one floor is work on the Sabbath. And guess where I saw, much to my chagrin, a Sabbath elevator here in St. Louis, St. Luke's Hospital, and I was there, I went after church, this was like six months ago, I went after the late services, visited someone there, and I, I, you know, I wasn't paying attention, I'm coming back, I jump, I press the button, I get on the elevator, and it's stopping at the next floor. There's nobody getting on, stopping at the next floor, nobody's getting on, and I look and it says Sabbath elevator there. <laughs> And it was a Sunday, so it, we were past the Jewish Sabbath, and I'm thinking somebody must have not, I don't know, turned a switch or whatever, but it's not even the Sabbath. 
So just if you go to St. Luke's today, just be careful uh, uh, coming down. All right, where were we here? Uh, Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews, so he is a member of the Sanhedrin, right? And there's a couple spots later, we won't look at it right now. Um, we can look at that next week where Nicodemus is mentioned. And the result of this encounter with Jesus is actually going to be a believer. There's another spot later on when he argues for Jesus at the Sanhedrin, when they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. And Nicodemus says, wait a minute, doesn't our law allow someone to speak for themselves, in effect, and give their defense? And then remember, after Jesus is crucified and taken down from the cross, it is Nicodemus who comes with 75 pounds of, of spices preparation uh, for the body of Jesus. Who was, another, who was another guy that we know was a member of the Sanhedrin and was a convert? Joseph of Arimathea is the other one. Okay? So we know at least those two guys, and I think there are probably some others as well. We just don't have them spelled out here. Okay? Um, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, there we are again, that you do unless God is with him. All right, so why would he come to Jesus at night? Probably fear. Most, most people think he just doesn't want to be seen, you know, in the broad daylight coming to Jesus and, and talking with him. Uh, I, I have to say this. This is a joke one of the professors had at the seminary. This is the first occurrence of Nick at night, for those of you that are uh, keeping track. <laughs> I think on that note, I tell you what, we'll probably pick up next week here, start over and go through this, because um, I don't want to fly through this. There's a lot here, okay? When he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, actually the better translation is born from above, and then says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, what's he talking about there? Christian baptism has not been instituted yet as we know it today, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to what is he referring when he says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom? Okay? So we'll, we'll let you uh, think about that, those things until next week. But you're going to... Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, believe in his name includes everything that he is saying, everything he is doing, all the benefits that, that he would do. They believed in his name. Uh, and in the same way, when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's all the blessings of the triune God are given at that point. Okay? All right, let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thank you.